Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today for the conclusion of the story of Kit Kennedy, especially as it intertwines with her very famous family and brings together so many of our threads over these last few months. We have made it into our investigation into the launch of the Second World War in 1940 for Kick and her Kennedy family. Then so many wonderful and terrible things will happen in short order, the war being only one of them. The decade of the 1940s are filled with many highs and the lowest of lows for the Kennedy family, claiming both the lives of Joe Jr. and Kick, and furthermore Rosemary in a way too leaving the Kennedy family forever altered and very much living in haunted memories of the family that was once so much together in everything they did. Stardust, the musical classic by Hoagy Carmichael, is our theme today with lyrics that I think very much could pertain to the Kennedys in the decade of the 40s and beyond. Gone but never forgotten, so to speak. The lyrics of Stardust. Sometimes I wonder how I spend the lonely night dreaming of a song. The melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you when our love was new and each kiss an inspiration. But that was long ago, and now my consolation is in the stardust of a song. Besides the garden wall, when the stars are bright, you are in my arms. The nightingale tells his fairy tale of paradise where roses grew. Though I dream in vain in my heart, it will remain. My stardust melody, a memory of love's refrain. So much about the future will be spent for Kick and her family in a stardust melody and a memory of love's refrain. Let's investigate. Enfolding ourselves back into this story, let us remember the whirlwind love affair between Kit Kennedy and Billy. Ah, the Marquess of Hardington, Billy Cavendish, ready to be the Duke of Devonshire one day. Kit and Billy meet in the summer of 1938, and it was a whirlwind love affair that included fancy dinners in London, lavish parties in the country, trips to the races at Newmarket, Newmarket is about 65 miles north of London and is considered the birthplace of thoroughbred horse racing. You can't forget about the young lovers having small dinner parties at Billy's room at Cambridge, all very intimate. The couple's very much in love and they are hanging with their high society peerage set. And life is pretty good for the young couple, at least if their parents are not involved. Kick and Billy are really into each other. They fall hard and they fall fast. And Kick and Billy dream of becoming the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire one day. Their dream as young lovers is to unite together and then they together would return Chatsworth to its glories like back in the Whig days. 200 years before, Kick and Billy want to make their future home as well as their company, their camaraderie, 
a great political center in England. And although Kick and Billy are quite different, they recognize something in each other. But at this point, our lovers really are quite opposite. Remember, Kick is lively, bubbly, effervescent. Billy is a little bit more shy, not quite as bold, but it takes one to know one. You're a cowboy like me. Kick and Billy, they're so in love and so different. Here's a really good example of one of these differences. Kick will tease Billy about his excessive concern for appearance. Not only his own appearance, but outwardly, how do things present, how do things look? Billy this one time gets really upset when Kick wants to snatch up a souvenir ashtray after dinner in a restaurant. This is something Kick would have easily done in the company of her older brothers, Joe and Jack. But Billy, mm, not quite into it. He's like, hey, American girl, I need you to understand all the traditions of Great Britain. All of these lofty ideas of honor and duty, and we've held them for centuries and centuries. The value of our country and our countrymen and Great Britain just like every other country in Europe, is no stranger to war. And Billy is trying to impart something in kick about honor and duty. And you honor your country by fighting. And everybody knows that war is coming most assuredly. And poor kick is in the thick of it, at least as it concerns her father, Joe Kennedy, who's acting as ambassador to the court of St. James. Joe Kennedy, all slung up in it. Now, Joe, goodness, is opposed to the whole war. His big thing is appeasement, suggesting that any and all concessions should be made to Hitler and his regime of horror. Naturally, Joe Kennedy's opposition to the war is considered a scandal, both in Great Britain and in the United States. His route for appeasement phase will effectively end Joe Kennedy's own political hopes and aspirations. Don't worry, though, for Joe. He has sons he can pass them on to. But I need to let you know that Joe Kennedy's time in Great Britain does not end as a success. For him, and more problematically, for his kids. The last thing in the world that Joe and Rose Kennedy expect when they launch their children across the pond is a world war that will see their two oldest sons going to fight in short order. They didn't see that Rosemary, their daughter, after so many years of struggle, would find a wonderful environment to thrive in, or that Kick would love all of it as much as she does. Rose and Joe never see that Kick would find love with a future Duke of Devonshire. Naturally, the love affair is put on hold with Kick and Billy when German troops march into Czechoslovakia in March of 1939. This is in direct violation of the Munich Agreement. And at this point, Britain could no longer pretend that Hitler could be trusted. Everybody knows more attacks are going to follow. And Joe Kennedy, as ambassador, will direct all United States citizens to exit out of Britain in 1939 even including his own family. His wife Rose is just a little miffed. She gets this news while vacationing in the south of France, so kind of bad timing, at least as she's concerned. In September of 1939, it is Kick, Rose, Eunice, and Bobby Kennedy that sail back to the United States, and this leaves our girl Kick mad, sad, angry. Remember, Kick has 
pled with her father to let her stay, let her assist in the war effort. She'd be able to volunteer anywhere, but alas, there is no changing, Joe Kennedy's mind. And honestly, Rose is going to support this same decision to get her daughter away from Billy Cavendish, the Anglican. Rose, y'all know, is Catholic first and foremost, and Rose will never, ever, ever be on the side of her daughter and Billy. So here, Kick is back in the United States. She's going to be hanging out in New York with her brothers, Joe and Jack. They are launched back into the social scene of the day in their country. Now the three of them are a little older, with a bit more of a sophisticated worldview from being over in London. The social scene, nightclubs, parties, will occupy three of the four eldest Kennedy kids, Joe, Jack, and Kick, but not Rosemary, though. We're going to come back to Sweet Rosemary in just a moment. But hey, Kick, naturally, doing New York in the season. They're also going to be heading down to Palm Beach, too. High society as well, high society. And the circuit, the routine, is pretty regimented at this point. Palm Beach is where you land from January to springtime, and Kick as a daughter is dutiful. She's having fun. She's following the rules, doing what she should be doing, but Kick is missing her man. And here is Kick writing daily letters to Billy and Billy to her, and every day they're growing closer through these tender missives of love and hopefulness for the future. So many letters between the lovers. Billy will join the British Expeditionary Force in France, and war really is becoming very, very real. With Kit Kennedy being the favorite daughter and all, at least for Joe's heart, Joe Kennedy thinks his daughter Kick would be a fantastic journalist. And maybe if you were a reporter Kick, you could get on assignment and get a reason to get back to Great Britain and the love of your life. You've got to have a reason to go. They're not just going to let you travel. We're in the middle of a world war. Papa Joe will helpfully line up a secretary gig for Kick at the Washington Times Herald in Washington, D.C., and for Kick, this is a foot in the door, and maybe Kick can work her way on up to becoming a reporter. Kick actually is going to get some testing on her investigative skills as she will report on something else for Rose Kennedy. And here's where we get back to Sweet Rosemary in 1940. Kick traveling with Rose and her family wherever the season is. Kick is also solicited into research for something. Our girl Kick, super smart, definitely an investigator. And remember that Rosemary has returned from London at the very, very last minute for her own safety. And Rose Kennedy will write to friends of the family to place her 22-year-old daughter Rosemary into like a summer camp of sorts, but not to be an attendee, to be a teacher at the summer camp. Rose Kennedy is setting Rosemary up with something that Rosemary is not at all equipped to do, which becomes very clear to the folks running the camp who will call Rose Kennedy immediately. Hey, you need to come and get your daughter. Rose Kennedy does not do this, and Rose instead takes off to the Elizabeth Arden Spa in Maine. It takes about a month, but eventually Rosemary is collected from the camp and then sent to Raven Hill Assumption Academy. 
Raven Hill Assumption Academy is a big-time Catholic girls' school attended by future Princess of Monaco Grace Kelly. The school, huge deal. We are talking about the education of girls from very wealthy and very privileged families. As you can imagine, the school for Rosemary, still very much at an elementary school level, but capable with supportive supervision, Ravenhill Assumption Academy is not a school or an environment in which Rosemary would thrive. By the fall of 1941, Joe and Rose are at odds with what exactly to do with Rosemary. Rose wants to admit Rosemary to a psychiatric hospital, but Papa Joe has been hearing about a new procedure that just might heal his daughter. This procedure is called a lobotomy. See, Rosemary has been escaping from school at night, and the nuns would find her having had a few drinks, leaves in her hair, her clothes are a little must. Joe and Rose are terrified, more for the scandal of what would happen more than anything else. And with all the nuns reporting in on the Rosemary behaving badly beat, Joe and Rose are completely thinking the worst. There are a couple of doctors at this time practicing prefrontal lobotomies. But I need y'all to know, at this time, it is an experimental treatment. These doctors are not skilled. You may be familiar with this story and how it goes very badly. But Joe is being lied to by these doctors. They're lying about their data and their results of their completely rudimentary practices And through these lies, they convince Joe Kennedy, who would probably be easy to convince because they're saying Rosemary can be cured. She can be healed. Granted, I was not in the room for this conversation. I'm not exactly sure what Joe Kennedy wanted to get, but he will talk with his wife and Rose will talk to her daughter, Kick, and ask Kick to investigate the doctors and the procedure and the data and the results that these doctors are reporting on. And Kit Kennedy will do some sleuthing around for her mother and will in turn report disastrous results. Kit Kennedy warns against this procedure for her sister a thousand times over. Mom, it is dangerous. It's not going to help. These doctors are charlatans. Please don't do this to Rosemary. But Papa Joe is determined and will have Rosemary submitted to a painful and cruel frontal lobotomy with disastrous results in November of 1941. Rosemary, who was at a functioning level upon going into the procedure, will exit the procedure completely disabled, fully incontinent, and in a far, far worse state. It is at this point that Joe Kennedy places Rosemary into a psychiatric hospital, and here Rosemary will stay for the next seven years. Joe Kennedy never says a word about Rosemary until the early 1960s. Teddy Kennedy, the youngest of the Kennedy children, like all of his siblings, loves Rosemary. He is nine when she simply disappears, and Teddy wonders why she was sent away. He talks about the mysterious disappearance of his older sister, who he loves, 
And Teddy Kennedy begins to think, if I'm bad, if I don't behave, will I go away too? It's not just the absence of Rosemary. It is the absence of Rosemary and no one ever talking about it that leaves each member of the Kennedy family truly scarred in ways that are difficult to comprehend. Rosemary is the first of many Kennedy family tragedies. And Rosemary's story, the hidden forgotten sister, just ah, proceeds in a way that is terrible for everyone involved. Rosemary is kept on lockdown, hidden, secreted away from everyone. Just to avoid any embarrassment she might bring on the Kennedy family, at least in Joe's estimation. Rosemary's seclusion in the first place, again, going to run about seven years until 1949. Then Rosemary is sent to Wisconsin, where nuns will care for her. Papa Joe, remember Rosemary calls him Daddy from all those long-ago letters, will only see Rosemary a few times in the decade of the 1940s. Even more astonishing to believe Rose Kennedy will not see her daughter Rosemary until 1962. 21 years. Think about that, y'all. Why does it take that long? Because Joe won't tell anyone where Rosemary is until after his stroke in 1961. We are going to come back and complete Rosemary's story, but y'all, this is not the only tragedy that happened in the autumn of 1941. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings, crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Our girl Kick is going to find out some devastating news just a few weeks before Rosemary's terrible procedure. Just the month before, in October of 1941, Kick goes to the mailbox so excited to get one of those letters from her true and adoring love, Billy. And this letter lets Kick know that Billy Cavendish is engaged to another gal. And Billy still, though, would like Kick to continue writing to him daily letters, but the love affair is over. Sorry, Kick. This is the way things are. Perhaps a bit of a bright spot just six days after Kick gets this letter. Her 24-year-old brother and psychological twin, Jack Kennedy, will come to D.C. to join Kick. Jack is beginning active duty in the Foreign Intelligence Branch of the Division of Naval Intelligence. And huzzah! Our psychological twins are back together. Their parties, events, nightclubs, all of it. Life on the town is good for Jack and Kick. And the two of them are the two guests every hostess wants in D.C. to make your party complete. They're both good-looking, charming, loaded with charisma. And Jack and Kick kind of have an act. They play off each other. They tell great stories They are very much seen as little twin stars, twin spirits in D.C. at this time. They always have been seen as twin stars, Jack and Kick. 
Now remember, Kick is working at the Washington Times Herald in her little paper gig. And here Kick is going to meet a blonde lady from Denmark, Inga Arvid. And Inga really, really wants to meet Kick's brother, Jack. And they will meet. And then the little Stardust twins have a third wheel. As you can imagine, Jack Kennedy is a fan of Inga, the voluptuous blonde, who does have a bit of a backstory. Inga had been a beauty queen in her native Denmark, a film actress, and a reporter for a major newspaper in Copenhagen, as well as having traveled to pre-war Germany. And at this time, Inga interviews Hitler. And Hitler pronounces Inga at this time a perfect specimen of Nordic beauty. Hitler will invite Inga to join Hitler in his private box at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Not really a good look headed into a war. Inga's prior newspaper experience will get her into the Columbia University School of Journalism in New York and then on to the Washington Times Herald. Inga will write about she and Jack's first encounter. He had the charm that makes the birds come out of their trees. I have gooey eyes for him. Jack reciprocates with the same gooey eyes for Inga, and they begin a torrid love affair. Four years separate Jack and Inga, Inga being the older, and a young Jack Kennedy getting turned on to a lot of things by his older lover. Inga is giving Jack quite an education in politics and history, and also in lovemaking. Both Kit Kennedy and Jack White will assist Jack Kennedy in these liaisons between Jack and Inga. Why do they need assistance? Well, problematically, Inga is married to a very jealous Hungarian. And I guess it's all fun and games until Jack Kennedy was like, hey, I have a great idea. I think I want to marry Inga. The time frames are moving really fast here, friends, because we've moved the timetable up now to December 1941, and in this month does occur the bombing of Pearl Harbor. The Washington Times Herald is going to take a lot of heat after publishing the secret United States war plans. The staff of the paper are all now viewed as traitors responsible for the attack on Pearl Harbor, Rumors abound, and naturally, fingers are flying in all directions with accusations. And it is Inga that the blame goes to. Remember when she sat in Hitler's box at the 1936 Olympics? Certainly, she is Hitler's spy. Inga, for her part, denies it all and will go to the feds with her I am a freelance journalist act, but alas, the feddies don't really buy her act either. And now the FBI is more than interested, way more than curious, and begins following Inga with a tail and also tapping her telephone lines. And whoa, baby, what do they learn? Jack Kennedy is her lover boy. Now, Papa Joe, who was a notorious womanizer himself, was pretty into Inga, at least for his son's sexual pleasure, until all of this comes out. And Joe tells Jack he has to end it. Jack is soon transferred to the Charleston Navy Yard in South Carolina with the Office of Naval Intelligence, but Jack doesn't stop seeing Inga. 
leading to a bugged hotel room where all the reports of all the time that the couple spent together was sent to Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy is not only hearing it from, you know, the FBI and the Office of Naval Intelligence, but Joe Kennedy's daughter Kick has been filling Papa in as well. Perhaps Kick has become a little jealous of this all-consuming love affair that her stardust twin is having while she is separated from her true love, Billy. Inga is a big no, capital no, hell no, from the whole Kennedy clan. She would be a divorced woman if she were to marry Jack and therefore a liability if, you know, hey, she's probably a spy thing, didn't already discount her. Inga wants to fight for Jack, but there's a war raging on and Jack will soon be commanding the PT-109 by April of 1943 in full wartime duty in the Solomon Islands, putting that love affair on hold. Kit Kennedy, though, still not giving up on her dream to get back to England and get back to her true love, Billy. And Kick is relentless in her pursuit. Rose and Joe will finally allow Kick to return to London to serve as a volunteer for the American Red Cross. But this is going to take four long and lonely years for Kick to return. She will come back to London in 1943. And holy catch, y'all, when Kick sees Billy, who's now gone from a boy to a man in the last few years, Billy has a physique that's been in active workouts prepping for war duty. Billy is hot, like movie star handsome, with a hot body to boot, and Kick Kennedy is into all of it. Once back in London, Kick and Billy pick up their relationship where they left off with Billy's previous engagement done and dusted. Now that the two are reunited, the hot gossip is, will their romance turn into an engagement and marriage? Just putting a few things out here to keep you in the story. Remember, Andrew Cavendish, the younger brother of Billy, has met and married Deborah Mitford. They got married in 1941. Kick and Billy and Andrew and Deborah are all very close. They're together often. As far as Rose and Joe are concerned, remember parents who are all about appearance. I want you to think about this. Deborah Mitford, wife and potentially future sister-in-law for Kit Kennedy. Deborah Mitford is the sister of Unity Mitford, Hitler's lucky charm and maybe girlfriend. And remember, Jack Kennedy, their son, has narrowly escaped being put into a spy ring with Inga, like, can you even imagine Joe and Rose Kennedy here with what they think about Kick and her romance? And we're not even going to talk about those problems because, honestly, the religious differences of the Kennedy and the Cavendish families still seem to be the most unsolvable problem. Kick knows that her mother is never going to allow her to marry outside of the Catholic Church. Billy's mother really loves Kick and feels like Kick is great for her son. However, Billy's father, Edward, the 10th Duke of Devonshire, was opposed to the match because, remember, Kick's Catholic and the Duke of Devonshire is like the most anti-Catholic guy in England. Eventually, Kick and Billy, deeply in love, 
were determined to work out the religious differences and find a way to marry. After meeting with clergy on both sides and involving both sides of the family, an agreement was made that any sons that were produced in the marriage would be raised Protestant and any daughters would be raised Catholic. While Kick would not give up her Catholic faith, Kick would agree to be married in a civil ceremony and no longer be allowed to participate in the sacraments. Billy's family is supportive of the union. Rose Kennedy, however, remains fervently opposed. And there are actually newspaper stories from the time that Rose was hospitalized near death over her grief about the upcoming marriage. Oh my, forever is the sweetest con. Billy and Kick do get what they are after. Kick gets her center-cut sapphire engagement ring with diamonds flanking either side. And it is in a simple pale pink crepe dress on May the 6th, 1944, at the register office in the Chelsea Town Hall in London, that Kick and Billy are, blessedly, finally married. Kick's older brother, Joe Jr., was the only Kennedy family member who attended Kick's wedding to Billy Cavendish. Upon her marriage, Kick becomes the Marchioness of Hardington and would someday become the Duchess of Devonshire. The dream that Kick and Billy have doing it all together, it all looks so promising for our young lovers. 200 folks attend the reception held at the home of Lady Hambleton. Rose petals are thrown for the couple upon their exit who depart to Compton Place for their honeymoon, where two beds had been pushed together that Billy will separate, that Kick pushes back together. Kick will later reveal to a friend that the wedding night was mm, not terrific. She chalks it up to Billy's lack of experience, but through the next few weeks sunbathing in lush gardens filled with flowers, the couple will figure it out. Just in time, unfortunately, for the invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. It is on June 13th that Billy receives his orders that he is being shipped out to serve as an officer in the Coldstream Guards just five weeks after his wedding day. Both of Kick's brothers, Joe and Jack, are also deeply entrenched in the war. Billy is now sent away to serve. And Rose Kennedy, if you can imagine, finally, finally agrees to speak with Kick again when Billy's sent to the front. Sounds about right for Rose, right? I mean, poor Kick, married in May, husband off to war in June, brothers are fighting too, but the summer has more tragedy to bring. Tragedy will strike and does it ever. Joe Jr., the eldest child of the Kennedy family. Joe has been doing incredible things. He leaves before his final year of Harvard to volunteer as a Navy flyer, with his wings being awarded in May of 1942. Joe Jr. flies Caribbean patrols until September of 1943 when he's sent to England with the 1st Naval Squadron to fly B-52s with the British Naval Command. Joe, the handsome, strong, charismatic hero, first son and golden boy, is killed in action on August 12, 1944. Joe's death will devastate the entire Kennedy family. 
taking this excerpt from the jfklibrary.org site about Joe. His military service, which ended with his death on August 12, 1944, was described as follows by his brother, John F. Kennedy. His squadron, flying in the bitter winter over the Bay of Biscay, suffered heavy casualties, and by the time Joe had completed his designated number of missions in May, he had lost his former co-pilot and a number of close friends. Joe refused his poffered leave and persuaded his crew to remain on for D-Day. They flew frequently during June and July, and at the end of July they were given another opportunity to go home. He felt it unfair to ask his crew to stay on longer, and they returned to the United States. He remained, for he had heard of a new and special assignment for which volunteers had been requested, which would require another month of the most dangerous type of flying. It may be felt, perhaps, that Joe should not have pushed his luck so far and should have accepted his leave and come home. But two facts must be borne in mind. First, at the time of his death, he had completed probably more combat missions and heavy bombers than any other pilot of his rank in the Navy and therefore was preeminently qualified. And secondly, as he told a friend early in August, he considered the odds at least 50-50, and Joe never asked for any better odds than that. The secret mission on which he lost his life was described by a fellow officer after it was declassified. Joe, regarded as an experienced patrol plane commander and a fellow officer, an expert in radio control projects, was to take a drone liberator bomber loaded with 21,170 pounds of high explosives into the air and to stay with it until two mother planes had achieved complete radio control over the drone. They were then to bail out over England. The drone, under control of the mother planes, was to proceed on the mission, which was to culminate in a crash dive on the target, a V-2 rocket launching site in Normandy. The airplane was in flight with routine checking of the radio's controls proceeding satisfactorily when at 6.20 p.m. on August 12, 1944, two explosions blasted the drone, resulting in the death of its two pilots. No final conclusions as to the cause of the explosions has ever been reached. Joe was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross and also an Air Medal. In 1946, a destroyer, the USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., destroyer number 850, was launched at the Four River Shipyards as the Navy's final tribute to a gallant officer and his heroic devotion to duty. The destroyer USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., DD-850, is now a museum in Battleship Cove in Fall River, Massachusetts. In 1946, the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation was established by Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy to honor their eldest son. The foundation aims to improve the way that society deals with its citizens who have intellectual disabilities and to help identify and disseminate ways to prevent the causes of intellectual disabilities. Oh, this is abject tragedy and all future hopes that have been pinned on 
Joe Jr. are now dashed. I mean, for Joe Sr., for, for Papa Joe, for sure. And the whole Kennedy family is now making some adjustments. Remember, Kennedys don't cry, but they do mourn. And against the requests of every one of the Cavendish family, Kick will return home to the United States to her family for Joe's funeral. So let's keep it all on track. Married in May, husband shipped in June, brother dies in August. Kick has returned home to the United States, and it is during this time that word was sent to Kit Kennedy at Chatsworth, notifying her that her husband Billy had been shot through the heart and killed instantly, attempting to capture the German-occupied city of Heppen in Belgium. Billy Cavendish killed in action just four months after they had been married. Billy dies September the 9th, 1944. And because Kick is not at Chatsworth, Kick is in the United States, Billy's mother will open that telegram, fearing that it carries bad news, which it does. Kick being over in the United States, it will take a week for news to reach her. Kick is found shopping in New York City and then taken to the family's apartment at the Waldorf Astoria, then told the sad news. Kick writes in her diary, So ends the story of Billy and Kick. I can't believe that the one thing I felt might happen should have happened. Billy is dead. Life is so cruel. Writing is impossible. Kit Kennedy, just a few mere months after marriage, is now a widow. Kick immediately will return to England after hearing of Billy's death. And Kick, just like all of the Cavendish family, were shocked and deeply saddened by the loss of Billy. The Cavendishes take comfort in Kick's presence and want Kick to stay with them. There is also naturally a hope that Kick may be pregnant with an heir. Soon, though, it would become obvious that Kick was not pregnant. And at this point, Andrew Cavendish, second son, becomes the Marquess of Hardington and heir to the Duke of Devonshire. This now elevates Deborah Mitford, being the Duchess of Devonshire in waiting. Oh, how fortunes change. Deborah and Andrew Cavendish will be the ones to actually restore Chatsworth into the place it is today, all of that covered in previous episodes. As it concerns mother and daughter, Rose Kennedy believes that now Kick's mortal sin has been absolved with Billy's death and the mother-daughter relationship has been restored. Kick Kennedy will resume her volunteer duties at the Red Cross and is once again very much sought after by suitors. There are a lot of suitable guys lining up for Kick, including Prime Minister Anthony Eden. Kick's choice is not Anthony Eden, but a little bit of a fun spiderweb here. Future Prime Minister Anthony Eden will marry in 1952 to Clarissa Spencer Churchill, the granddaughter of Jenny Jerome. And honestly, Eden for Kick might have been a good match, but alas, it is in 1946, attending a ball in honor of Britain's wartime commandos, that Kick finds herself a very, very unsuitable match instead, one Peter Fitzwilliam, the eighth Earl Fitzwilliam. 
Peter really has a mouthful of a name. William Henry Lawrence Peter Wentworth Fitzwilliam, 8th Earl Fitzwilliam. He is the fifth child of the seventh Earl. However, Peter is the first boy. And boy, oh boy, does that ever make a difference. There is one major problem, though, complicating the love affair between Peter and Kick, and that first and foremost problem is that Peter Fitzwilliam is married. Peter married back in 1933 to Olive Dorothea Plunkett. Olive Dorothea was granddaughter of the Archbishop of Dublin. Peter's pops passes away in 1943, leaving Peter the new Earl. Peter at this point had been married 10 years earlier, and by this time, Peter and Olive Dorothea have a 10-year-old daughter, Lady Anne Juliet Dorothea Maud Wentworth Fitzwilliam. She's born in 1935. You now know her as Lady Juliet Tagel. Oh, Peter. Peter's got a reputation as a heavy partier and notorious womanizer. Peter's wife drinks a bit, too. I mean, the marriage doesn't sound super happy on either side. And all of Kick's friends are like, girl, you are in danger. And you thought Rose Kennedy was upset about Billy Cavendish? Holy cats, Peter Fitzwilliam is a whole different ball of mess. But Kit Kennedy doesn't hear a word of it. She thinks Peter Fitzwilliam can get her to where she wants to go, which is into the peerage across the pond, searching for something that she never got with Billy. Maybe wants a, another shot at that ring. Oh, but friends, here's the worst bit. Remember Kit Kennedy growing up would defend her mom in the face of Papa Joe's philandering. She would not join in with her brothers when they were kind of piling on Rose for all of the just flagrant stuff Joe Kennedy did. Oh, it's terrible. Peter Fitzwilliam does the same thing with his mistress kick that Papa Joe Kennedy did with his mistresses. He'll bring them to the family home and flaunt them in front of his wife. Joe flaunted his mistresses in front of Rose. Peter is doing it in front of his wife, Olive Dorothea. Come on, Kick, sit down to dinner with my family. Can you imagine? All terrible. But Peter apparently is into Kit Kennedy and he'll begin the process of divorcing his wife. And let's face it, there is no way that Kick's parents, especially Rose Kennedy, would ever accept a marriage to a divorcee. The affair of the married playboy gambler Peter Fitzwilliam and the dowager marchioness of Hardington Kathleen Kennedy Cavendish scandalizes London society. All the hot rage, all the hot goss here, but this love affair will soon have a tragic end. It is rumored that through Peter's friendship with Prince Ali Khan, remember, who had an affair with Pamela Churchill and would later marry Rita Hayworth. Here, through Ali Khan, Peter had learned of an ancient lovemaking technique, remember, that could delay orgasm for hours. We talked about this in the Chateau de la Horizon episode. Peter and Kick have had many romantic getaways at Prince Ali Khan's villa, the Chateau de la Horizon on the Riviera. And again, none of Kick's friends support this relationship with Fitzwilliam, but Kick doesn't care. 
It's going to take her a long time to break the news of her marriage plans to her parents. Rose Kennedy naturally is furious and promises to disinherit her daughter and never speak to Kick again if she goes through with the marriage to Peter. Kick is pretty well determined to go through with that marriage to Peter, fate be damned. And it is on May 13, 1948, the lovers charter a plane to visit Kick's father in France. They hoped to convince Joe Kennedy to agree to the marriage. Before takeoff, there was a report of bad weather and the captain of the plane did not want to fly. But Peter Fitzwilliam convinced the pilot to continue with the plans. The plane will fly into a thunderstorm, crashing and killing all aboard. Kit Kennedy was dead at the age of 28. All three families involved, the Kennedys, the Fitzwilliams, and the Devonshires, all joined together to hide the truth behind the crash. The official story in the newspapers was that Kick, Lady Hardington, had been offered a flight by her acquaintance, Lord Fitzwilliam. Papa Joe, Joe Kennedy Sr., was the only member of the family to attend Kick's funeral. The Kennedy family made no attempt to take possession of Kick's body, and Kick was buried in the Cavendish plot at St. Peter's Churchyard. Kick will be visited in death by both her brother Jack and Bobby. Oh, Kick Kennedy the Duchess of Devonshire that never was. (sighs) She really was the girl with that certain thing. I want to connect it all back together here with one final contribution from Will Swift on Kit Kennedy back from his 2008 speech from Will Swift. Just one further note on Kit. I had a letter two weeks ago from Debo Mitford. The Mitford family lived around the corner from the Kennedys at Prince's Gate. The Mitfords were a famous political family because the sisters all had differing political persuasions. Debo was apolitical. She married Billy Hardington's younger brother, Andrew, who later became the Duke of Devonshire. One sister, Jessica, was a communist. Her older sister, Diana, was a Nazi sympathizer. And her sister, Unity, was in love with Hitler. It was quite a complex family, but they mirrored the complex political ideologies at that time. Two weeks ago, I got a letter from Debo about my book. She said, This is the 60th anniversary of Kick's death, and I want you to know that the weather and the wisteria at her grave is exactly as it was 60 years ago that day of her funeral. And it brings back such poignant memories. It was so difficult for all of us to lose her. It was difficult for many, and Kick's legacy will go on to influence her remaining siblings and the lives they lead and Kennedy generations beyond. The 1940s are not the only decade filled with tragedy for the Kennedy family. John Fitzgerald Kennedy assassinated in 1963. Robert Kennedy killed in 1968. It doesn't ever seem like the Kennedys really do get a good decade. But I want to take a moment here to follow up on Sweet Rosemary, the very first in our Kennedy family catastrophes. Jack will see his sister Rosemary in 1958. And when he does, it will affect him deeply. 
Eunice Kennedy will say that she did not know where Rosemary was for a decade. Remember, Teddy Kennedy is nine when Rosemary disappears. And all of the Kennedy kids were told never to ask about Rosemary. We don't talk about Rosemary. Your questions will remain unanswered. Don't ask them anymore. Upon Joe Kennedy's stroke in 61, he does reveal where Rosemary is. And when Rosemary does finally see her siblings, Rosemary is not able to communicate, but she knows exactly who they are. Joe Kennedy will build a specific house for Rosemary in Wisconsin to be cared for where the nuns and Rosemary live. And friends, no word of Rosemary or her story was made public until 1987. It is truly horrifying what happened to her and the generational trauma of her experience and how it impacted her family. Rosemary, to me, is is the first tragedy. She's the key. She's the beginning of so much sadness. But her story maybe ultimately does some good. John F. Kennedy will support legislation for people with disabilities. Eunice Kennedy encourages Jack to do this in his administration. Joe Jr.'s foundation, established at the time of his death, will change its focus and become about this as well. Eunice is the lead driver of changing the focus of Joe Jr.'s foundation. And remember, Eunice will go on to found the Special Olympics. Gene Kennedy starts Very Special Arts. This is an art program for people with disabilities. Ted Kennedy, the Lion of the Senate, pushes through tremendous amounts of legislation in the Senate for folks with disabilities. And it is after Joe Kennedy dies that Rosemary will return to visit her Kennedy family, maybe for a week in Hyannisport, maybe for a week in Palm Beach. The family begins to get to know Rosemary again. All of Eunice Shriver's kids become close with Rosemary. And truly something to think about and note here, just to me is a simple unfairness of it all. 80% of the lobotomies performed were on women not men. There are no patient protections. And Rosemary, on some level, is expendable to Joe Kennedy. I don't think he would have made that same choice with either of his sons. Rose Kennedy, for her part, you get some differing opinions. Some places, Rose will claim she had absolutely no knowledge Rosemary's biographer will find actually some pretty hard proof that Rose knew exactly everything Joe was doing and was very disappointed that Joe went through with the procedure for their daughter. Rosemary's remaining siblings are all with her, Teddy, Jean, Patricia, and Eunice, when Rosemary passes away on January 7th, 2005 at the age of 86. Y'all, his whole family just rocked by post-traumatic stress disorder. Nobody talks about Rosemary. Just imagine that for 20 years in your family. Rosemary is the first tragedy, although not a death, but 
her story leads to just the tragedy and trauma of holding these dark secrets and being afraid to speak the truth out loud. I'm going to go back to the lyrics of Stardust one more time, as I hope it might mean a little more to you now at the end of our story today. Sometimes I wonder how I spend the lonely night dreaming of a song. The melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you. Though I dream in vain in my heart, it will remain my Stardust melody, a memory of love's refrain. Thank you all for tuning in and spending your time with me this week. We're going to be back sooner than you know with so much more. Got something really fun planned for February for you. We're going to take a little detour next month. Y'all are all going to want to be on board. In the meantime, if you're looking for a little bit more to your investigation, head on over to patreon.com slash done and done. 30 bonus episodes over there in addition to early and ad-free episodes too. And for all my Patreon folks, with a little bit of love to y'all, there's a bit of a bonus goodie for you at the end of this episode. I'm calling it a Dundrop. Just a little bit more info with all kinds of associated bits from Taylor Swift's Cowboy Like Me to... Carly Simon and Jacqueline Kennedy to Princess Margaret too. If you're a Patreon person, keep on listening for that. All y'all will see you back next week for an arc of fun spiderweb surprises. And until we meet again then, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.